0: Hey, everybody. Today is uh, Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. And this is the Tell Me About Your Tech Job podcast for SIU's Summer iTech 350 Real World IT Seminar class. And uh, I think we're up to about episode 14 or 15. So Exciting. Anyway, today we've got Dave Glass. Dave is a, a friend of our program and a friend of uh, IT and technology and hack hacking in Southern Illinois. And uh, Dave has always been very cool about giving his time and expertise to our classes. And we'll get more of that today. Um, always neat stuff that we hear from Dave. And so to get started, Dave, do you just want to kind of introduce yourself? Tell us. Uh, you know, where are you from? Um, What do you like to do for fun? And then kind of how did you get interested in technology?
1: Cool. Yeah. So my name is Dave Glass. Uh, I live in, currently live in Marion. I grew up in West Frankfurt. So I am from Southern Illinois. Uh, For, let's see, 14 of the last 18 years, I've worked in Silicon Valley. Uh, and before that, I worked, let's see, eight, nine years at different ISPs and software development companies in Carbondale. Uh, so I have been working in tech for, God, 25
0: years. All right. All right. <laughs> and, and we'll get more into that. But I think somebody who, who has about that level of career experience has really been fortunate i guess to see the drastic changes from where things began with internet just basically trickling into people's homes to now being able to hop on a little micro mobility scooter at SIU and crash it and you know do that all from the comfort and convenience of your phone um yes. so yeah so i've talked to a couple other people in, uh, about some of those some of those neat Uh, neat changes that we've been fortunate to see. Um, But um, so you're from around here. And before you started like really getting your your cutting your teeth, I guess, in the Southern Illinois internet and software scene, were you into computers growing up?
1: Uh, Well, a little bit. So we had, we had Apple IIe's in high school. So that was like my first connection to uh computers alone was just one of my math teachers uh and our library happened to have some apple IIes, and we got to spend time in there in between going to classes so that's that's where i started playing around with stuff was on one of those old old apple IIes, which i which i happen to have one in my attic
0: do you have the the um the joystick and can you play karateka no, I do not. But okay.
1: I, I do have Print Shop Pro and a dot matrix printer, and I can print you a banner.
0: Okay, so like a seven or eight page long yep. dot matrix. Okay. Happy birthday yep. or something like that in faded Absolutely. as you get to page four and five. <laughs> yeah, so when my when my mother passed away, we
1: were cleaning out her house, and it was still in my old bedroom closet in the bottom corner. So when we cleaned it out, I took it home with me. And the only floppy that survived was Print Shop Pro.
0: Awesome. Good one. Good one to have. <laughs> I remember uh I didn't have a, an Apple. I didn't get a computer till I was like maybe 12, I think, or 13, but my neighbors growing up did. And so they made little uh neighborhood newsletters uh using Print Shop Pro and um, trying to convince the the people that lived on the farms road that we we grew up on, you know, all seven of them that they should shell out a quarter for this this news. Uh, newspaper yeah Because the, that was
1: the first real computer i had before that it was a commodore vic-20
0: okay see i never i never messed with any of those i i ended up with a windows 3.1 acer <laughs> brand from best buy up in ferguson missouri yeah so my um my vic-20 came with a subscription to a
1: magazine And the magazine had every, every month it came out, it had a different game or program in the magazine and it literally printed the code in the magazine page by page. And you had to type it in and copy it exactly the way it was Uh in order to run it because you didn't have a a drive to save it on. When I first had it, there was no drive. I ended up getting a cassette tape drive later on, but it was one of those you had to put line by line in. if you screwed up at any point, you had to wipe it and start over. <laughs> there was like no backing up. If you entered that line and it was wrong, you're done. You have to back it all the way up and start from the beginning.
0: Unbelievable All the, yeah. uh, the, where, where we've come from. Yeah. Um, so when you, you started your, your IT work um, in Southern Illinois, and I know you worked for some internet service providers, did you do the ISP stuff first or did you do the software stuff?
1: Uh, I did ISP stuff first. Okay. Um, and then, <clears throat> so I was—I was always a Unix person. So I—I uh, I hate Windows uh, with a cold passion. Um, I originally started on old Unix boxes. Um, I ended up just tinkering around with it and found out that I had a really good, I guess, knack for figuring them out, mm-hmm. and um, just started doing you know, anything on a server that I could. Started writing Perl, doing CGI scripts here and there. Uh, it, and it wasn't until later on that I decided to get into actual programming and learning different
0: languages other than just making these machines run. So the internet back then, and I think I remember you were Midwest. Is that where you were? Yes. So, yep. so that was one of the bigger... Um, regional or local isps um you know everybody had the aol discs and the prodigy discs and stuff to get you know your pseudo internet but uh around here midwest was the that and my choice and a couple others were kind of the the ones that were around here midwest my choice heartland because heartland was out of paducah
1: globalize uh, yeah globalize and then there was ultimate satellite internet because i used to help run that one too okay Um, That was like almost the predecessor to what we see with uh, Elon Musk's Starlink
0: now. Cool. And I was just looking into that. Um, You know, I'm out here with Blip, so um, 30 30 down and five up, I think. But what were the the speeds that you were dealing with and what kind of technologies were behind the scenes and delivering internet to customers back in those days? And this would have been what, like the mid-90s? early to mid 90s mid 90s
1: yeah i think i started at midwest in 96 okay 95 somewhere around there um yeah each one of our pops in a town had a t1 okay that was it so a t1 is 1.5 meg yep so the entire town would run off of 1.5 meg
0: and then they were dished out using modem
1: banks right yeah yeah and what we would do is we would partner with somebody in town, whether it was a business or a person, and we would rent a closet and we would have the T1 run into their business or into their house. And we would put the modem bank into a closet and say, we'll give you free internet if you let us put this here.
0: And did they constantly have to hear the modems dialing up and screeching at them through the, from the closet?
1: No, no, that's only on the other side.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> turn uh, turn uh, those speaker commands off.
1: Yeah, they were, they were pretty quiet in those days. The The biggest problem that we had was the distance it took to get to one of them. So if one of them froze, right? I mean, you know, we, you'd have a router or a switch freeze all the time. If any one of those froze, you know, it, it could take a half an hour to an hour to drive from halfway across Southern Illinois to the other half to reboot a modem bank. So you end up getting pretty creative on the phone with people be like okay find this one it's it's a red cable i need you to unplug it count to 10 and plug it back in
0: Yep Sounds about right Yep And and so we're talking a single T1 which 1.544 megs and we're running modem banks with 288 originally
1: Originally it was originally it was 144
0: 144 Okay yep. so and then I,
1: 288 and then 56
0: So when okay. when i'm looking i did a quick mm calculator and from what i'm seeing if i remember correct and you should you probably have this memorized but a t1 at 1.544 with a bank of 28 8 modems could handle a little over 50 modems about well, that yeah okay
1: yeah, so between 40 and 50 people
0: so you can so you you can think about that today when when we've got students who are complaining because their mediacom is only 700 megs right and yep. and here you've got uh, fifty people sharing 1.5 megs. Um, yep. We've come a long way, baby, as they say.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I, I can remember when they came out with the dual 56k modem, so you could run two 56k modems side by side and dial up two phone lines.
0: And, and those and you
1: were got, got a whopping 128 down on that. You were just like, so great.
0: Yes, and you those were for the crazy people who who wanted to spend an extra thirty two dollars a month on another phone line too. Yes. Yep. Yeah, because
1: I, I was running one of those in the early '90s to run a, bill, a billboard system. So I had a billboard system that I shared out in West Frankfurt with uh, a whole bunch of people. We used to trade music, uh, trade uh, music tablature and stuff like that. And I, I remember the first time that I sent a photograph to someone in—I think they were in Arizona—and it okay. took like six. It took like six hours to send them one digital picture. Yeah. And it was just like the
0: coolest thing ever is that I could send someone a picture. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the bulletin boards, man, there'd be, that would be a history of computing topic that I would love to see somebody make a cool documentary about. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe someday. That news groups. Yeah. But, you know, somebody bulletin
1: boards and news groups,
0: somebody uh, at, at one of the local stores here in Carbondale saw my uh, Saluki, um, security dog shirt and was asking me and he was telling me that he still gets all of his um, copyright challenged movies and uh, TV shows from, from news groups. News groups yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that was still a thing.
1: Yeah. They're still hugely popular. Cause I mean, they're simple. It's simple technology. You can run it on really small servers. They don't take a lot of bandwidth
0: and, and, and they're getting,
1: literally de- they're literally designed
0: to run on the smallest amount of bandwidth possible and just text-based files that they're transferring. Mm-hmm. And then you got, then you got to get the PK zip and the PK unzip and <laughs> yeah. all right. So maybe we should zoom on to more modern day technology so that the students don't get bored. Um, so you spend some time, were you doing like administration and, or just everything at, 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 at Midwest internet, just kind of fixing uh, problems. A
1: little, yeah. A little bit of everything. Most of this time, most of it was uh, web development.
0: Okay. So So a lot of
1: it was web development because there was a sister company to Midwest Internet. It was called MICGI, which was Midwest Internet Consulting Group. Okay. And it was the original like web development team for Midwest Internet that they spawned off into a separate company that built websites for customers.
0: So these were probably the first companies in Southern Illinois to get a web presence up on the Internet. And so what what did the web development... Uh, what did it look like back then? I mean, not like physically, because we know it was like flashing GIFs and, you know, all sorts <laughs> of crazy stuff like that. But the the building of the sites themselves, you know, we, we know how easy some of that stuff is today. What did it look like back then?
1: Oh, it was much simpler back then, to be honest, because there wasn't so much of the flashy stuff to do. Um, it was all basic. It was just straight up, you know, HTML. I mean, at the time, you barely had uh, tables. I can remember when tables came out in Netscape Navigator, which was like the coolest thing ever. Um, we had just, uh, at that time, they had just started getting programming languages like ASP and PHP. They were brand new at the time, and we were all just kind of poking in the dark. There wasn't, a, you know, there wasn't a, a massive open source movement or a place like GitHub that you could find this stuff. Mm-hmm. You had to pick around and figure it out on your own. Right. I mean, I I can remember getting some errors in ASP that there was no documentation for. We literally had to call up Microsoft and get an engineer on the phone and say, what does this error mean? Because there is no documentation for this. (laughs) Good luck with that today. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, luckily today it's it's really documented. Well, I mean, compared compared to what it was 20 years ago, documentation is key now. And it makes things so much easier, especially with things like YouTube and, and, you know, YouTube, GitHub, Twitch, those things make programming a lot easier than it was when I was growing up, because when I was doing it, nobody knew what we were doing. Right. We just kind of fudged around until we figured it out.
0: And today there's enough people who are working in the same realms with the same technologies and languages that, that a problem you have quite likely has been had by another person before and they took the initiative to at least say something on a forum that you can, you know, get a little bit further down your troubleshooting rabbit hole with. So,
1: yeah, I I would almost go to where there's almost too much documentation at times. Okay. Because you you go to look up a solution and you find 15 different responses for how to solve that and none of them are actually right.
0: And some of them are just like leading you in the absolute wrong direction. Yeah. Yes. Yep, I I yep that's that's how it is today. I had something similar with a home question I asked not too long ago. Basically, the guy's quite, the guy was like maybe you should install solar panels. <laughs> solar panels? I'm asking about a timer on a pump. What are you talking about, man? Anyway, so so you're programming, you're you're coding, you kind of self-taught through your your startup here with the uh the the Midwest and then where did that where did that lead you um After, after that, after you were done. So, well, Midwest or
1: MICGI ended up becoming a company called School Center. Okay. And School Center was a very large K-12 application service provider. and In fact, they were one of the the first, I would go to say. Uh, There wasn't very many people doing what we were doing in the late 90s, early 2000s with uh, dynamic websites and uh, being able to allow people to log in and modify their own content. So we turn the average teacher into a web developer. Uh, and, you know, now we've got those tools all over the place, you know, WordPress has embedded that all over the internet, Yeah. but at the time, there wasn't anybody doing that for teachers, right. And making it easy for teachers and students to, to get in and handle homework and do email and attract attendance and do grade books and all this stuff. I think I spent, I don't know, eight years doing that. Okay. And then uh, Yahoo found me. Okay. And Yahoo offered me a, a gig to move from here to California to go work for them.
0: Now, before we talk about Yahoo, with, with School Center, you know, we're used to you know, a, a, an application or a product like what you're describing for handling all the stuff schools need. Um, you, today, you, it's almost a no-brainer. It's cloud. Yep. Back back then, what was that? What was that like? How did the school center architecture for their product? What did what did it look like? Well,
1: it, it was it was interesting because we we kind of did a, a hybrid cloud. We would either ship them servers and they would run them locally in their own data center, or they would use our servers from our data center in Carbondale. Okay, and we would serve everything from there, and they would use it, and and we we kind of pushed them for that because we were kind of early into the cloud thing, right? We we were we, we considered ourselves an application service provider is like, we're going to provide it to you and you're just going to use it. It's our, it's our servers. It's our code, run it from here and we'll take care of it. And, and it depended on the school district. Some school districts required that they had to have the servers in-house and others were like, we don't want to touch it. You run it yourself.
0: Gotcha. And so, and
1: it was, well, well, it was kind of interesting when we did that because you know, we got at one point, I think we had two or 300 servers all over the country and we had to worry about uh, updating them, upgrading them. How do you fix problems? How do you send them a new one? Do you send them two sticks of RAM? Do you send them a new hard drive? You know, how do do you fix things like that when you're 3000 miles away?
0: Right. And, and man, I can't imagine the logistical challenges associated with that. Yeah. Um, and, and especially when when companies start to use these as you know, like a core business tool, um, mm-hmm. needing and expecting uptime. That's gotta be
1: that's yeah, gotta be an yeah.
0: interesting, a couple of interesting support calls, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and it, it was. but it also made us think, you know, we used technology that we knew we could rely on, right? So we used we use Linux, we used PHP, Apache, MySQL. Everything at that time was open source. It was free. It didn't cost us any licensing to put it on all these boxes, but it also made it extremely easy to recover because we could literally send them a thumb drive and say, plug this thumb drive into the server and reboot it and it would reimage itself. Cool. Right. Because, because it is Linux, right. It's, it's totally easy to do that. And it's still easy to do that. And it was easy to do that 20 years ago. Um, and that, I think that's what made it so nice is that we could take care of it like that. I mean, provided that the machine didn't melt, right? As long as the machine still worked, right, you could just plug a thumb drive in, reboot it, and it was ready to go. We we had it so we could even pull the code down remotely and re-image itself and redo everything. Totally
0: reinstall the entire server just by booting it up to the thumb drive. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, So you get an offer from Yahoo and what are they wanting you to do? They find you because you, you've got these software Uh, development skills. Well, so
1: it was, it was interesting. Um, The company didn't like having their name attached to open source software so that whenever I gave something away or I worked on something that we used, I used my personal email address. That's how Yahoo found me was that they saw me contributing Uh, back to several of these open source products. And they're like, hey, we want to talk to you. So they pulled me in and interviewed me with, I don't know, five, six different teams uh, before I found the team that I liked. And then they offered to move me and my family out there and take a job. And then 14 years later, here I am.
0: (laughs) Back in Southern Illinois.
1: Yeah, So I was out in California for four of the 14 years. So 10 of the 14 years that I worked for Yahoo, I did actually work here in Mary.
0: Okay. And, and your role with Yahoo, when you first got out there, what was, what were you doing? I
1: was, so they, they had a skill level of like IC one, two, three, four, and it's IC is an individual contributor. Uh, So they hired me as an IC three, which is kind of a mid-level web developer. Okay. And I worked on the login pages. For Yahoo, So whenever you went and uh, went to log in or you went to update your account, change your password or anything like that, that was the team that I initially joined.
0: And Yahoo back then was still a huge, uh, you know, in in terms of search engines, they were, they were, you know, up there. Um, And they were also, they were also providing content. They were, they were giving people free emails like Hotmail was. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were, they were a big presence in their earlier days of, of internet. They're, um,
1: they're considered to be one of the originals. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, the um, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. Out in the Valley, they call it six degrees of Yahoo because you either work with or know someone or have worked at Yahoo. Gotcha. So every, every place you go, someone has worked there or someone you know has worked there or you work there. Right. I mean, it's just, it's been around so long. You know, it's. I think they're celebrating their 25th birthday. I mean, that's that's a massive amount of time for
0: an internet company to be around. Exactly, and and especially, you know, having having to pivot what they were doing in order to continue to be successful and relevant, um, because we all know kind of what happened when Google came in with their search engine and their their algorithm taking huge market share. Yep. Um, so they pivoted, and so you you were working on these different. You know, login web development um, was it was it a lot of security focus that you were doing? Uh,
1: no, uh, I was doing more of like account management. So like when you logged in and had to update your profile name or upload your picture or change your password, that type of thing. Um, that's what I was working on until I jumped to the team that I'm most known for, which is the open source work that I did while I was there.
0: Okay. And, and tell us tell us about that. So, I, one thing I was going to mention, or just just kind of say, was cool, is that you've had this history of just being in the open source community for as long as you've been doing technology, almost.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of open source technology, and uh, it, it's it's so beneficial in just dozens upon dozens of ways. We could go into an entire conversation on just how <laughs> how good open source is. Uh, But uh, back in in that time, that was right when jQuery came out. So John Resig came out with jQuery uh, just a few months before Yahoo released a thing called YUI, and it was the Yahoo user interface library, and it was a JavaScript framework similar to jQuery. Uh, And I was one of the original architects on that group, and I was kind of the face of the team. I was the guy they sent out to do all the talks and do all the presentations and Go and you know pimp out the the project, and I was the guy that was answering the emails when people asked questions, and was you know uh, just the I was just the kind of the face of the team at the time. Okay, and I, I spent, God, six years doing that, and uh, from beginning to end, it was it was probably the highlight of my career. It was pretty awesome.
0: And and so ha- the the YUI and the jQuery how were they one was a component of the other or uh, they were competitors more competitors that's than, what i thought yeah. that's yep so okay so jquery was out there in open source mm-hmm. and then yui was so yui started as an internal tool at yahoo that we
1: used to um normalize and standardize all of our JavaScript and CSS across all of our properties. So if you went to the Yahoo homepage or you went to Yahoo mail or news or sports, uh, you got the same experience because they were using the same code. Gotcha. And then after a while, we decided why not open source this to the rest of the world so that they can get the same benefit that we're getting from it. And that was the course we took was to let everybody have it.
0: Gotcha. And so then you'd go around and Talk to other companies who were trying to do something similar and say, Hey, we've got this YUI that we're going to put out there and do cool things with it.
1: Yep. And that's, that's, that is, like I said, the, the probably the highlight of my career at Yahoo was the years I spent doing that.
0: Because you, what was, what was most enjoyable about that, that time at Yahoo? I mean, you you talked about going out and kind of meeting people and just, just, all of that i mean leading the yeah i
1: i, I traveled all over the world and talked and met amazing people and saw amazing places and got to stand up in, in front of crowds of three to five hundred people and and just talk about all the cool things that we did um and everything that we would give away and how we were using it and and things like that it was just so much fun to do because uh, i've always considered myself more of a teacher than an actual developer okay. so as I'm writing my code, I tend to write it in a way that makes other people understand it and learn from it. Um, so that really mixed well with open source, right? It's like, I can give out this, not only does it work, but it also shows
0: you this is the way it's done and why it's done. Cool. And, and that's, you know, that is the way that people uh, learn that type of stuff for sure, yeah. it, it helps quite a bit. Um, so this was a time frame of like early to mid 2000.
1: See, I started at Yahoo in 2006. Oh, in 2006. So it would have been 2007-ish, 2008, when I took over
0: on the YUI team. Okay. And so Yahoo was not exactly a young kind of startup, hip internet, you know, Silicon Valley type of right. uh, scenario. They, they'd been around, but they still kind of had that, um, that vibe at yahoo so what was what was that like what was it like working for yahoo uh being surrounded by all these (laughs) other companies doing all sorts of crazy stuff in silicon valley at that time
1: uh so just to to frame it a little bit i was just after the bubble okay opt so i wasn't out there for the main portion of the bubble Uh, that they always talk about, right? Okay. Um, so there was not a lot of, you know, there were 50 Lamborghinis outside and, you know, there was cases of champagne running around. I wasn't there for that part. Okay. Um there were there were maybe two or three Lamborghinis sitting outside, but not 20 or 30 of them.
0: Of course.
1: (laughs) Sounds like my house. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So it it was it was really interesting um because the the I, I think I loved yahoo so much because they were such an open and inclusive company that i just i fell in love with everybody around i mean there 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 were no attitudes there were no i'm better than you i mean the 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 owners walked around in blue jeans and t-shirts right i mean if you saw somebody in a suit and tie, you knew they were visiting <laughs> I mean simply put, we never saw anyone in suits and ties. It wasn't until later on that we started getting some board members that would wear a suit and tie to the office, but for the most part, no one wore suits and ties i mean i would I wore flip flops and t shirts and tennis and shorts all the time. Uh, I shared a cube with a guy who had a six inch purple mohawk and wore a kilt every day <laughs> no nobody cares because
0: right. as long as you do what you do, who cares what you dress like right and and was it um where was, what what was the, like, did you work tons and tons of hours? Was that, you know, the norm at, at Yahoo at that time, or was it a pretty, you know, work-life balance? Uh, Was that something that, I mean, that's something we hear about when we think about more today. What was it like then? So Yahoo has always been very open about the work-life balance. Um,
1: They, they, it's, it's looked at a little weird at times, but it's like, we could show up and the top floor of the parking garage for the day would actually have an oil change company up there. And if you needed your car oil change, you would just drop it off up top before you go to work. And during the day they would change your oil That's Sweet. or there was, or the next day there was a car washing place, right? Uh, downstairs, there'd be an RV that pulled up once a week and it'd be a dentist. The next day it's a, it's a salon. So you can go in and get your haircut nice. or it was a, it was a doctor's office or it was a chiropractor. Right, so you didn't actually have to take like the whole day off to go to a doctor's appointment or to go get your haircut. You could just go downstairs during one of your breaks, get a haircut real quick, come back up and go to work. There was uh, there was um, boxes at the end of the aisles that you could put dry cleaning in and throw them in, and they would be put back in your cube a few days later. <laughs> that way, you didn't have to run and go do your dry cleaning. You could just drop it off at work, and they would take care of it.
0: Because you're in San Francisco, and going anywhere is a pain in the butt too, right? yeah
1: well we we were in silicon valley which is about 45 to 50 minutes south of san
0: francisco okay so that close is that that's between san jose and san francisco
1: uh well so san jose is technically silicon valley
0: gotcha okay so san
1: jose you got san jose like sunnyvale which is where yahoo is at mountain view which is where google is at cupertino which is where apple is at they're all like little suburbs around uh san jose gotcha so they were, they were, like I said, they were really good about that. Even up when I was gotten toward the end, there was actually a company that would come by and fill your gas tank up. They had a gas truck that would drive by and they would just open up your gas tank and fill up your gas tank. If you asked them to.
0: And that was just a perk of working there.
1: So Some of the things were perks and some of them were just discounts. Gotcha. Right. And, and, you know, the the whole place was like that. It was breakfast, lunch, and dinner was served every day. Uh, You had unlimited coffee, unlimited soft drinks, unlimited snacks all day long. Um, So you really didn't have to go anywhere. So you didn't have to work 10 or 12 hours a day because you could get everything done in your eight, nine hours while you're there because you never had to leave. You didn't have to go anywhere to do anything else. Uh, So
0: it made it really easy to just kind of take off at four o'clock in the afternoon and go home. And so, did that like kind of contribute to um, you know keeping people sticking around with Yahoo? Because I know, yep. you know, Silicon Valley, lots of people jump left and right depending on what's hot and what's new yep. and opportunities. So, so, so they had a little more in terms of keeping keeping people. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Loyal and yes. and continuing to work, which is why you stayed there for 14 years. Yes.
1: Well, so there's there's also a difference between. There there are a couple of different types of engineers when it comes to being in tech, right? So you have those like me that what I did was I moved from department to department in the company as I progressed up in the seniority chain, right? And each time I switched, I got to learn new things. I got to work with new people. I got to mess with new technologies and I got to advance in my field, right? So I started as an IC3, but when I left, I was a VP. And that's because I spent all those years increasing my knowledge as I went across the company. And I literally touched almost every portion of the company in the 14 years I was there. Uh, There was hardly a team that I didn't work with at least once while I was there. Uh, And then there is the other kind that they go to take a job at company A, they work there for two years, they vest their stocks, they get a cash buyout, and then they jump to the next company that gives them a bunch of stocks, but they have to hold it for another two years. So they work there for two years. They bet their stocks, they get it, they dump it and they go next place. And eventually they try to increase their seniority by jumping from company to company because they're gaining that same experience. Okay. I just happened to like the fact that I liked who I worked with and I liked the company and I loved the products. So I never I never wanted to go anywhere else because it was so much fun what I was doing.
0: That's awesome. And, and that's something I think, you know um people should strive for you know more more so than that that top paycheck um I mean that paycheck's good but but the the satisfaction of, of liking and, and 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 under appreciate appreciating what you do and the the purpose right. of it I think is is huge um which is why I like teaching so much you know yeah um, and, and you build some you know you build lifelong friendships too right
1: so like three three people that I talk to on a daily basis are three of my ex co-workers from yahoo two of them are at goldman sachs and another one's the cto of medical art oh okay they're they're not even at yahoo anymore but we all still talk to each other every day just like we would have if we were still working at yahoo together
0: awesome so then when does um what happens with with verizon and yahoo and how does that change the the landscape and and what you were doing so that that changed a lot (laughs) for me um with you
1: know, considering this is going to be a public podcast, I I don't want to say too much. That's Um, fine. It's just, I I can definitely put it this way. A Silicon Valley company does not mix well with an East Coast telco. Sure. Um, The East Coast telcos tend to be khaki and polo shirts. And when you walk in in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt, you're not the same group of people.
0: Right. Yep. Yeah.
1: And um, those that caused problems for me, which is one of the reasons I
0: left. Okay. So Verizon, Verizon bought Yahoo, and yep. that was around what year was that? 2016, 17, 16,
1: 17, somewhere around there.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. And, and, then, and, and
1: then they since sold it.
0: And they since sold Yahoo?
1: Yeah. So who owns yeah, Yahoo they, now? They no longer A private equity company bought them.
0: Okay. OK. Um, so what was I mean, do you maybe maybe this isn't a good question, but what was the motivation for an East Coast tel- telco company to buy Yahoo? What did they think they were getting uh, or what well, were they so hoping to do with it?
1: They already owned AOL. So Verizon owned AOL from a few years before. OK. And they thought buying Yahoo and combining it with AOL would have made a powerhouse for
0: Gotcha. But people started moving away from AOL uh, a long time before that happened, actually. And... Sorry about that. I had to pause my robot vacuum or going to make too much noise. <laughs> well, that's another thing we'll talk about, IoT stuff. So we'll, we'll zip along a little further because I want to hear about that stuff and the students will want to hear about that stuff too. So so you, you ended up, uh, oh, representing HackSI with the CUSI. The oh, of here. course. Yeah. Sweet. Um, We'll let you have time to talk about that too. So you've, you've uh, you left, you left Verizon slash Yahoo. And, and where did you, where did you land after that? And this is, this has been after you've been back in Southern Illinois, Illinois reestablishing home base in Marion.
1: Yeah. So let's see, I moved back here in 2010 and then I left Yahoo in 2019, I think. Um, Yeah, it was, beginning of 2019, I think, or end of 2019, I, I left. And uh, then I, I retired for two years. And I just recently came out of retirement at the beginning of this year to go to work for Medical Alert.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: with my friend who happens to be the CTO.
0: Okay. And, and so, go ahead. What, what do you do for Medical Alert now? And, or maybe tell just in case people aren't familiar, what is, what is Medical Alert? What do they do? Okay, so medical alert, first off, is not the, I've fallen and I can't get up people. Right.
1: Not the, not the same people. Uh, medical alert is actually the bracelet or the necklace that you see people wear that usually says, I'm allergic to penicillin, or I have a nut allergy, or I'm diabetic, or something like that.
0: Have a pacemaker. That's,
1: yes, that that is medical alert. And uh, I am their current currently their principal engineer, and I'm helping them kind of migrate from being kind of a jewelry sales place to actually being a tech company to help with the digital generation, right? The most, most of what they've done before has been like bracelets and necklaces and, you know, uh, shoe toe tags and stuff like that. We're trying to push more for like a QR code that you can scan a QR code on a sticker or on an ID card. And it would show you your relevant health information so that if you stuck that sticker on like a motorcycle helmet or say the or, or like a, uh, a flap on your seatbelt, if you get into an accident, the EMT can see that they can scan it and they have instant access to your medical information that they could use to assist you at that time.
0: And, and I will say Monica up there, she's actually a, a nurse, uh, a registered nurse currently and so I, I see her shaking her head and being really you know in tune to this so uh, yeah so and- Me- medical Alert is pretty cool i mean it's a nonprofit. it's it's uh, we consider
1: it a 65 year old startup hmm. uh and, and it's it's kind of cool working for a nonprofit. i i love the fact that i you know everything we do is open it's public um in fact by the end of the year my salary is actually going to be publicly notable because of the the fact of the way the company runs got it yeah okay um It is kind of cool, but it's also, it's really interesting when we start diving in to see some of the stuff they do under the hood that most people don't really realize. So we have have a database of about 1.8 million customers, and we have an interaction with 911. So whenever someone calls 911, their API sends us the phone number. We look up that phone number in our system to find out if it's one of our users. And if it is, we tell 911, hey, these are the X number of users that return from this phone number. They will then pick it and then call us again. And we give them more information about that user that they can then relay to the EMT or to the hospital at the time 911 is called.
0: Awesome. And, and, it, and
1: it's pretty cool. I mean, we, we do a, about 240,000 requests a day wow. from 911. And we, I think we answer 600 to 700 a day as being one of our users which is pretty cool and and saving lives for sure yes yes and it and it's you know and that's some of the things that we're doing now is trying to make this technology more accessible right so before they had the scan the qr code and it would show you a web page well the first thing i did was trim that web page down make it as fast as possible make it load in one single request all of the like the images are all embedded all the fonts are in you know that way it's one request and it will work from a cell phone in the middle of nowhere and you'll still be able to get content, right? It's, it's things like that, that people don't think about that an EMT may need that if they're stuck on the side of the interstate in the middle of nowhere, trying to pull up a 4G or 5G signal to get this information. You want to get to them fast,
0: right? That you don't want be, them to sit around and wait. Right. That might decide whether they use drug A or drug B because drug exactly. B is going to kill them. Yep.
1: Yes. So, so it's, it's kind of cool to, to, to be that close to it and doing everything I can to make that, that usage better. Right. And to get that information to the people who need it is absolutely fast as possible.
0: Awesome. And, and really uh, innovative. And, and so, you know, medical Alert- Typically, we think of as as older people using their technology, <laughs> but but is is this shift and um, what you're doing now is it to to bring in uh, younger folks that may have medical issues that maybe hadn't considered using MedAlert because they didn't want to wear a bracelet? Well,
1: we we also want to make sure that we're bringing in new technology too, right? So, like we could, in theory, this is you know, quote in theory, we could have say an iOS app that you could log in with that would then pull your Apple health data and be able to present that to EMTs.
0: Okay. So if you've got the watch and it does your EKG Mm -hmm. and then it pulls all that stuff so you can see.
1: Yes. Well, what about if you had an Apple wallet card? So you didn't even have to have a sticker or a digital card or a a physical card. You could have an Apple wallet card. You just double click on the side, swipe it up. Boom. You got all the information that you need right there in front of you. Good. right. So there, you know, there are just, there's so many cool technical things that you could do that hadn't been thought of yet because they were literally just focused on bracelets and necklaces. Right. Uh, so, you know, how can we help people better using digital real-time technology? Right. I mean, in theory, you know, we could have an app that you press the button and we get your GPS location and it pings the medical alert, uh, 24-hour phone support that then calls an EMT and directs them directly to you.
0: Kind of like the, um, the OnStar, but without the huge monthly payment. Yeah, yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah, so there's there's just so many cool things that we can do that we're just, we're, we're not
0: even to that yet.
1: We're just cleaning up, you know, like cleaning up current websites and making things run faster and better.
0: Uh, you know, and it's just, it's kind of a progressive scale as it goes up. So are these... Are these ideas about how to make use of technology better, are they coming straight from your brain or you got a team that you work with? Or? There's a team. Yeah,
1: there's a team of us. The CTO is in charge of most of that. It's just I'm the one in charge of making it happen.
0: Okay, good, good, good. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, I have a I have a cousin that was here this weekend who's a, an EMT in, in St. Charles. And I know I've talked to him before about, You know the the communications that go on and how that occurs between uh, another another cousins and uh, a flight nurse Um, and and just the ability to to get the info you need ahead of time and how they get that to the the hospital so that people can you know benefit from from timely decisions and 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 that type of thing it's just it's just amazing you know there's just really neat stuff that's happening and. And, and it's one of those things like, you guess, you know, you wouldn't appreciate it until you need it to save your life. Need it. Yep. Cool. Yeah. And
1: and for me, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, a personal reason to, to go with doing it. one. I like the fact it's a nonprofit, right? That's cool. I love working for a nonprofit. I mean, it's, it doesn't pay nearly as well as Silicon Valley does, but it's, it's more of a, it makes me feel better about what I do right um, but in 2019 I actually had a heart attack and mm-hmm. my Apple watch told me that I need to go to the hospital so my Apple watch literally saved my life and now I wear one 24 hours a day I have two I wear one during the day and then I swap it out for one that I wear overnight and it monitors my br- my breathing and it monitors my heart
0: all night what which, which what kind of feature? notified you that you were having problems when you, when you had the heart attack. It, it noticed
1: that my heart rate was extremely high and I was not active. It's okay. like, it, it told me that my heart rate was over 135 beats per minute for 10 minutes. And I was not apparently moving. And then, yeah. And I, I knew something was wrong, but when it told me that it's like, okay, we're going to the hospital. So well, you can- four, well, less than four, less than a week later, I was in for a bypass. Wow. So. It, it it's it really hits home to me for technology helping with health, right? So, me doing this is just a natural. It was just kind of a natural place to go because it's just totally awesome to do, and knowing that I'm helping other people the way tech helped me. That's cool. And I did. I didn't know that. I don't know if you'd mentioned that before, but that's. I, I don't tell a whole lot of people that one, but <clears throat> but it was it was you know it, like I said that showed me you know and then after that. My son wears a watch, my daughter wears a watch, my wife wears a watch. Everybody that I know wears an Apple Watch um, to, to make sure we're tracking our health. And it keeps an eye on our
0: heart and it keeps an eye on our breathing. So are you using the most recent uh, model of Apple Watch with the new uh, EKGs? Or I think there's something even yep. newer than that now, right? Yeah, the new one has a uh, breathing, blood breathing. oxygen level. Yeah, my, my father-in-law, actually, my wife just ordered him one last Thursday. They were over here getting it all set up and and he's got parkinson's and so he wanted to you know get a little more than the fitbit offered so yep so that's neat so maybe i should uh, maybe this might be my my ticket to convincing my wife that i need to get better than the apple 4 that i've that i've got here <laughs> maybe,
1: maybe yeah so that, i slowly upgraded everybody in our family to make sure they all have one with the heart rate
0: monitor on it yeah mine's got the heart rate monitor but doesn't have the ekg but yep all right. So, so yeah, uh, I'm going to show well, see this. The, and the, the EKG
1: on this one is, is even more important because after I
0: had my heart surgery,
1: um, was it two days later, I ended up going into AFib for a couple of hours. Uh, and the, uh, this watch will tell you if you go into AFib, there's an AFib alert on it. And that's why, that's why I decided to get two of them and wear it 24 hours a day So wait, it's in up. case Right, so in case I happen to go into AFib again at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, it will alert me and let me know. I know the chances are very low. It's, you know, it's very high after the surgery and after they gave me the medication, it's not supposed to happen again, but there is a probability that it could happen at some point in the future. So I make sure that
0: my watch is on all the time to ensure that that is taken care of. So perfect segue into the next so when your apple watch if it detects anything funny does it make your whole house light up and beep and sound (laughs) sound alarms and tell us about your 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 smart home stuff that's fascinating things that i'm actually in the middle of of a little bit of research and project on on getting my my geothermal uh i think i'm going to go out and buy an ecobee uh today um but tell us what you've got tell us some of the passions and some of the cool things you've done, um, with, with home automation.
1: Okay. Let's see. <laughs> that, that's, Where that's do a, we start? That's wide, yeah. That's a wide topic. Let's see. I've got 22 cameras inside and out that record 24 hours a day, uh, up to 14 days for the storage on a 28 terabyte storage. Um, uh,
0: Array? uh NAS. Yeah. NASA. It's a NAS
1: in my office um let's see it records 24 7 not not motion activated because i did find out that you can bypass motion activation if you're too fast oh if you go in front of one of those things too too quickly it won't have time to register that there was motion and if it doesn't so if the camera is not smart enough to be recording for a few seconds before it trips if it just starts when it trips you could
0: be out of frame before it even starts the recording That would be my problem because I'm moving around the house like a ninja wherever
1: I go. So, yeah, I have it recording all the time. Uh, A lot of the other problems is that some of those cameras, their motion sensing is not actually motion sensing. It's image comparison. So it takes two images and
0: it tries to compare the contrast between those two images to find out if something has changed. And it does that on the server that it's running, which is delay. And yeah,
1: yep. Well, which one of the Mythbusters actually showed that you can get around some of those by holding a sheet up. Because if you hold the sheet up and you do it slow enough, it won't notice a change because the sheet's the same thing. So gotcha. if you put the sheet up in front of it and then you walk behind the sheet, it'll never know that you were there.
0: Okay. So now I'm thinking about, you know, my, my future <laughs> bank robbery uh, <laughs> schemes. And, and, and now I need to get like a foil emergency blanket or something to, to, to transition around with. With that at right, my so, ninja speed.
1: So after the, the cameras, let's see, there is 150 um, smart devices. So that is every window has a sensor on it. Every door has a sensor on it. Every room has one or more motion sensors in them. Um, let's see. Yeah, and then there is water leak sensors in all of the bathrooms and next to every water heater um, and under the kitchen sink trying to think of the rest of them.
0: Yeah. And then every, almost every light switch in the house is a smart light switch. And, and what do these do for you? How does it make life better? Um, Well, so we're pretty spoiled. Like now you (laughs) walk into a room and you can just
1: be like Google, turn on the light and it'll just turn the light on for you. Um, The bathrooms, you just walk in, they turn the light on, you close the door, it turns the fan on, you open the door, it turns the fan off. Right. It's just those things you, you don't have to forget or you don't have to remember to do it. It just does it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the house goes through what's uh, called a good morning and a good night. So it monitors several ha- uh, portions of the house with, with motion. And if all of those motions stop and all of the lights turn off, the house will shut itself off for the night. And what, by doing that, it makes sure that all the doors are locked. It takes off the power to the garage doors so that even if you break into my car, you can't get in the garage door. You know, it it makes sure that all of the lights are turned off. It makes sure that the outside lights are turned on or the motion is active for that. And then there are certain motion sensors in the morning that after a certain time, if those things pick up motion, it does a good morning routine, which unlocks a door. It turns on a few outlets. It turns on a couple of lights and, you know, kind of preps you for the day.
0: Coffee maker?
1: No, at Starbucks. That's my my morning run is to go to Starbucks. That's how I get out of the house. Gotcha. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, work, but you could the do home. the coffee maker if you wanted to.
1: Yes, I could do the coffee maker if I wanted to. I actually have the ice maker hooked up to it, so I have one of the countertop ice makers. It'll turn that on in the morning
0: to start prepping the ice for the day. That's pretty neat. Um, so the convenience thing, obviously. But what yeah. about like energy savings? Is are you seeing yeah. energy savings by by now? Now, my understanding is you can get all these things, and they can be smart, and they have the capacity and the the potential to do a lot to save your energy but if you don't get them tweaked right and set to do the things on the right times you're out you're not doing anything
1: yeah so i i've done quite a bit of that over the years um what one of the coolest ones is that if the house sees more than one window open it turns the air conditioners off okay and then when you start closing all the windows it turns them back on
0: and so these are tied in with like Zigbee sensors to your, yep. you, the smart, smart kit or smart, smart, uh, smart things, smart things. Okay. Yep. So, so you, you've got the, the Samsung, I think smart things as your, your internal kind of hub, but mm-hmm. then a lot of what you've got going on is just custom written stuff that you've, yes. you've, you've built yourself to tweak it and make it work the way you want it to work.
1: Yeah. So I, I have,
0: I have smart things, and then I have custom integration
1: with Google that allows me to see all of my my cameras on uh, the the Google Home. And then I can turn lights on and off through voice. And then I also have HomeKit running on another machine that then gives me access to Siri. So that Siri can now control all the cameras and all the lights. So I can actually be not at home. I can open up my iPhone and tell Siri to turn on a light. Cool. And it'll totally do it.
0: Now, I'm going to be a little selfish and ask, what have you done or anything that has improved heating and air conditioning? I mean, you've done like smart vents or anything like that.
1: Uh, I did not do any smart vents because I do have geothermal. Okay. Um, And mostly that is just using all of the sensors in the house to determine the the correct temperature to set the AC. So I can determine, um, you know, I can determine an average based on the number of sensors. So one of the downfalls with almost any heating and air conditioning is that your thermostat is in a really bad place, Uh and that's exactly where it judges your heat. So if it's in a hallway that happens to be underneath a register, you're going to get bad readings because the rest of the house may be one temperature, but that hallway may be a different temperature. So I have it set to where it goes through and it pools all of the temperature devices in the house. And it gives me an average of what the entire house is. And then it adjusts the temperature accordingly to get the rest of the house to an average temperature that I want and not whatever the thermostat thinks it
0: wants. Gotcha. So, So what is the connecting technology that takes your readers or your sensors of your temperature and then tells the thermostat what to do? about a 45-line JavaScript file that I wrote. Okay, so, so is that running on the, the um, what, what where's that run, just on a server? That it actually
1: runs, it runs on Heroku. It runs, it's a deployed Heroku app that I deployed years ago.
0: Okay, that's pretty interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then it also allows me to control my geothermal so that I can see, I can set the temperature through voice. I can just say, "Hey, set the temperature to this and it'll set the temperature. Uh, But it runs through my logic. So when I say set it to 72, it doesn't just set the the thermostat to 72. It tells my logic to say, what is the entire house temperature? Set it to what it needs to be in order to make the house 72. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So so I, I may say set it to 72 and it'll set it on 71 or it'll set it on 75 or it'll set it on 69. Right. Because it knows that it needs an average room temperature and not just wherever that thermostat's at.
0: So one last selfish question. Uh, with the smart thermostat, um, does that provide you with a look into your geothermal to whether it's operating properly? Does it give you di- so it gives you the actual diagnostics and tells you like your flow rate and stuff? Yeah, so I, I use the standard
1: thermostat that came with my geothermal because and a smart thermostat doesn't normally work with geothermal. okay Because a, a, a geothermal system is more rated like a heat pump. Right. And a lot of the smart thermostats don't work on heat pumps. So then the, the, the water furnace brand one, right? Yeah. So I, I ended up getting the water furnace brand. They have an adapter that you can plug into your geothermal that puts it on Wi-Fi that gives you control over the system remotely. Okay. And then I, I reverse engineered that and built my own API out of it so I could talk to it.
0: Gotcha. Okay, well, that's you know I'm, I'm working on decreasing energy use around my house and figuring out yep. how to tweak my geothermal because we've had some well, see, high. Well, so
1: that, that was what I did over the years. Was you know first I replaced all the windows, then I replaced all the doors. Um, you you can get what's called a, um, a an air test, mm-hmm. and they'll you close all the windows and the doors, and they hook up to the front door and they put a fan on it and it sucks all the air out. And it gives you a rating of how much air is flowing through your house. And then they go through and then they fill in all the gaps and the holes and everything that they need to. And then they run it again to find out how much it saved. Right. So I did that first. And okay. then, you know, I put a, I put a new cooling roof on uh, and then I swapped everything to LEDs. Right. So it's like I, I started that first before I went with the smart stuff because I wanted the house to have a baseline before I could then automate. Gotcha. I was also trying to prep the automation for solar panels, right? So like, I wanted to be able to turn off the dishwasher during the day and only allow the dishwasher to run at night because, or, you know, run run on, you know, battery power, or you don't want the dishwasher and the washing machine running at the same time. Gotcha. Right. So so I wanted to be able to to like make a, a line and say, you can only run these things at certain times of the day uh, to conserve the energy.
0: I may have more questions for you, Dave. Do <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, John and Monica, we've reached the end of our hour. Do you have any questions for Dave? Awesome.
1: So back to Yahoo land, did, did your coworker like send his kilts in to be Uh, dry clean because everyone's (laughs) walking around in flip flops and shorts. I don't see much need for dry
0: cleaning, but I do. Someone's got press those, I guess. Uh, question: Anything about radon in your house? Like radon monitoring, mitigation? Yes, so I, I
1: I don't. There's not one in this room. It's on the other side, but I do have smoke detectors with radon and uh, Mm -hmm. carbon monoxide. They're Z-wave based, and they're in every room in the house. Gotcha. Uh, and then, and then like if the, if the fire alarm goes off, right. So if one of those goes off, it will turn every light on in the house. It unlocks
0: every deadbolt. And so that's and the time to the rob off. you
1: then, is to trip the smoke alarms. Yes.
0: Okay. <laughs> yep. As long as you walk in with a sheet covering yourself.
1: <laughs> <The> sheet. <laughs> Real slow. Neat. Well, yeah, well, so that, that was one of the emergency features, right, is if the alarm oh, yeah. goes off, unlock all the deadbolts so that you can get out. Oh, and
0: so the fire department can get
1: in without yes, kicking your door that down.
0: Too.
1: That yeah. too. Awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, it's it's also secured like you can't unlock a door with voice. Okay. You can lock a door with voice, but you cannot mm-hmm. unlock the door with voice. Okay. All that right. way somebody can't stand out the front window and say, hey, unlock the door. Or record right. your voice and then play it. Yes. Well, see, that, that's one of the reasons I got rid of my Alexa devices and replaced them with Google is because Google has the voice pattern matching for people mm-hmm. and Alexa does not. Okay. So you can actually say that if I'm talking to the device, it does one thing. But if my kid talks
0: to the device, it does something completely mm-hmm. different. Neat stuff, Dave. Neat stuff. We'll have to talk more uh, in, in fall during the IoT class if you, if, you, if you got time again. Of course. I always have time for you, man. Thank you very much. We'll let you go. Appreciate it. As always, learning a lot. You do lots of cool stuff and we appreciate you uh, being a friend to our program. Thank you, Dave. All right. Well-